Welcome to Link's Dynasty. I'm your host, Neil Olstad. This is a podcast about Minnesota's most successful sports franchise and the people, themes, and philosophies that make it special. This episode revolves solely around one individual who is a legendary figure in the history of Minnesota basketball. Whether you're a fan of the Lynx, Timberwolves, Gophers, or the St. Louis Park Orioles, you probably know this person. This is Jim Peterson, a former Minnesota Lynx associate head coach, current Timberwolves TV analyst, and um, basketball connoisseur. That's right. None other than Jim Pete himself. He's a brilliant basketball mind and an all-around good guy. He was an assistant and associate head coach with the Lynx for eight years and stepped down after the 2016 season. Jim has also been a part of the Timberwolves broadcast team for 20 years. The intersection of these two jobs that he held simultaneously has always fascinated me. He was nice enough to sit down with me and talk about his time with the Lynx, including what he learned from Shale Reeve and some of his favorite players. But first, we must start at the beginning. I first interviewed with Don Zierden uh, in probably uh, 2007. Don Zierden coached the Lynx in 2007 and 2008. He got his start in professional hoops with the Timberwolves as a video coordinator and assistant coach under the late Flip Saunders. It was Zierden who hired Jim and helped him launch his WNBA career. Jim walked me through his entire WNBA journey, from being hired by Zierden to the arrival of Cheryl Reeve in 2010 and everything she has done for the franchise since. You know, really, I haven't interviewed for many jobs in my life. I, you know, I was an NBA player. I worked for the Players Association, and I got a job with the Timberwolves. You know, and I, <laughs> I haven't really interviewed in my life, which is pretty amazing. But so I went in, and, and you know, Teresa Edwards um, was an assistant coach. It was between me and Teresa Edwards. And Teresa Edwards is obviously one of the greatest players of all time. So they gave the job to Teresa. The next year, Teresa Edwards moved on. Um, he asked me to come back in 2009. And so, you know, I just kind of wanted to add things to my utility belt. You know, I was I had the broadcasting thing pretty down pretty good. But um, I, st- I felt I could do better and do more. So um, I was always a fan of the WNBA. But when Don asked me, I thought it was going to be a great opportunity to learn from him because he's a fantastic coach. He's, you know, he's obviously a Flip Saunders disciple and he and Flip spent a lot of time together. So, um, so it was great. So that season we started scouting together. So we scouted, you know, I, my first scouting, uh, visit was, I went down to Louisville to watch Angel McCautry play. She was a senior at Louisville. And then um, I went to a couple other places. Don and I went to Duke University. We saw Duke play uh, Maryland, and Christy Tolliver was on Maryland at that time. And he wanted, oh, Don Zierden wanted Christy Tolliver so bad because she could shoot it. You know, she's a great shooter. And so we, we scouted together, and then, you know, the Wolves season ended, and we started training camp. And um, But it was funny because at the end of the Wolves season, um, Flip got the job in Washington with the Wizards. And so at this time, McHale is still there and Whitman is still there and all these Flip Saunders cronies are are with the Timberwolves organization. And and it was a game day during a Wolves season. This was probably sometime in uh, March or April. And when Flip got the job in Washington, I go to shoot around and, and all the coaches were giving me a hard time saying like, you know, 
Now, mind you, I have not coached a single practice in the WNBA. All I've done is scout. And, and so they're all giving me a hard time. Hey, you know, you're going to be head coach of the Lynx now. I was like, Don's going to head, go to Washington with Flip. I was like, what? What are you talking about? I, Don's leaving? We haven't even coached, we haven't coached a practice together. And now you're saying he's going to. So I, it was a rumor uh, that Don was going to not even coach the Lynx. So I texted Don and he's like, you know, don't worry about the rumors. There's nothing about that. So whatever. So we start training camp with the Lynx. Wolf season ends. But I'm kind of like, my radar is sort of like going, okay, what's going on here? I mean, this is kind of making me nervous. You know what I mean? I've never coached in WNB. I've never coached at a high level before. And now the guy that's the head coach who hired me is thinking about leaving. And so I was just kind of on alert. We start training camp. First week, second week, third week. We get through training camp. We're coming towards the end of training camp. And um, it's the end of May, and we play our first game uh, three days from this last practice that we were going to have three days. And we come into the coaches meeting and Don tells Jen Gillum and I that he's leaving and that, um, and that this was going to be his last practice and he was going to have us run the practice. Um, and that at the end of the practice, he was going to tell the players that he was leaving just threw me in the deep end. I mean, he threw me right in the deep end. He just he just threw me right in the deep end and uh so he he gets the players together afterwards. We meet in the video room in the old practice facility at uh, at Target Center. And he goes um he goes I got some good news and I got some bad news. I said um the good news is he goes the good news is you're not going to have to look at my ugly face anymore because I'm leaving. I'm going to Washington. He goes the bad news is, is I'm taking Eddie Prohoski with me. So Eddie Eddie was on the staff. Eddie's now back with the Lynx right now. But um, so he basically, he and Eddie walked out and uh, Jen and I are sitting there and Jen, Jen's going to take over as the head coach. And um, here we are three days before our first game and our head coach leaves. And that was, that was a, <clears throat> that was a very difficult uh, scenario. And, um, you know, and so Jen, we, you know, we, we got through that season, um, didn't make the playoffs. And then at the end of the year, um, actually, during that season was when uh, Kurt Rambis came in, and uh, Bill Lambeer was going to be on on staff. With so Bill, so every time we went and played Detroit, um, Cheryl Reeve and I would talk. So Cheryl was an assistant. Rick Mahorn was the head coach at that time. Cheryl was the, should have been the head coach, but they gave it to Rick instead when Bill left. Um, and so every time I just, me and Cheryl just clicked, you know. And knowing her now, I can't believe she actually talked to me that long when we played Detroit both times is because she's she's kind of a no-nonsense person I, I bet we sat there and chatted for 20 20 30 minutes before the game um and Cheryl and I just resonated so when when uh, that season ended and Jen Gillum <clears throat> didn't get re-signed I told Roger Griffith I said you got to hire Cheryl Reeve I said she is phenomenal and I heard all these stories about how she was the one that really ran practice in Detroit, that Bill Lambeer was the head coach and got all the accolades. And it's not that Bill couldn't coach. And it's not that Bill wasn't a good coach. But Cheryl is – when you talk to those Detroit players, they say Cheryl Reeve is unbelievable. So I told Roger, I said, you gotta, you got to hire Cheryl Reeve. She's – I mean, I've talked to her a bunch and said she's really smart and I really like her. And so um, – um, the season ended, and so then we played. Uh, I'm back with the Wolves now, and we play an exhibition game in Detroit. And all the Detroit players came back to see Lambeer, who was on the Wolves bench at that time. So I saw Cheryl again now at this Detroit Pistons game at the Palace, and Cheryl and I had a chance to talk. And I told Cheryl, I said, I told Roger, he's got to hire you. 
and um, um, Roger ended up bringing her in, and Cheryl and Roger and I had lunch together, and just it was a great meeting, and he ends up hiring her, and Cheryl ended up keeping me on. So, and I don't think it was a a quid pro quo. I don't think it was because I did this, she did that. I think it's just generally because we just really lined up um, from a basketball perspective. And she also understood that I loved the women's game. Um, She is a no-nonsense person, like I say. She she would not bring somebody in if they didn't think they had her best interest or the player's best interest at heart. So, I just always appreciated that. That relationship, but it, it came, uh, it was trial by fire, you know, it's like, it's like Don Zierden leaving, Jen Gillen coming in, grinding that first year, not knowing anything about the league and the players and how to coach and, and how to do it right. And then coming in with Cheryl Reeve and then, you know, we really struggled that first year that Cheryl was here. And, um, but the thing about Cheryl that I just appreciate so much is her attention to detail. And she taught me a lot about how to prepare for a game and, um, um, I, I just, I, she's one of the most important people uh, in my basketball career because of what she was able to give me in terms of attention to detail. You know, it's like when you think about what it takes to be um, a good coach, a good team, a good organization, um, there are so many organizations and teams and coaches and coaching staffs that don't have attention to detail. And it doesn't take that much more to be good, I think, to, to be excellent if you just understand what you need to focus on and and do those things. And so that's where that's the genius of Cheryl Reeve is that she's so organizationally so good. And I've not been around a coach that 360 degrees sort of knows how to do kind of all these different aspects, whether it's player valuation, uh, player relationships, being able to to drill down into a player and to connect with them in a way that they feel super valued and um and they, and they understand exactly what their role is. There's no equivocating. Cheryl will let you know and tell you exactly what you need to do. A lot of times players are confused and, and, and there's, um, or they're unhappy with their role or whatever. And Cheryl makes them see the value and what their, what their lane is for this team and what their, what their whole thing is. So um, everybody's got a role. She's a tremendous pl- practice planner. The way that she's able to... Um, organize a practice and then and then game plan for an upcoming opponent and and being able to strategically look at strengths and weaknesses and be able to game plan for that I learned a ton about how to do that from her um in-game coaching adjustments you know be able to you know during the course of the game diagnose what's going on and and uh you know being able to uh at timeouts draw up action be able to take that whiteboard and be able to clearly draw up a play set and, and, and draw it in such a way that makes sense. Like, cause so, there's so many coaches that take it and it's chicken scratch on the board. Like it doesn't make any sense. Players end up confused when they leave the timeout. Um, she's so good at communicating the game during timeout situations, being able to be calm, not always calm. She gets pretty emotional until you see it. I mean, she gets pretty, pretty fired up, but <laughs> she, she gets pretty fiery, but when she, she's, she's able to be calm and she's able to communicate, clearly what she wants and uh, give marching orders and um, just you know just just notice her during a game the way that she manages a game the way she's calling players over to the sideline the way she connects with Waylon uh, Waylon is so good too in her own way because she's so competitive and is so smart Waylon's able to take what Reed tells her and go out on the floor give the marching orders out during a free throw situation this is what we're going to do you know adjustments are always being made um just really, it's a machine, really, to, to be, and it was such a, a great thing to be a part of. 
Um, and so uh, I, I just I can't tell you how much I value that relationship with Cheryl Reeve. In the best employment environments, the people who you work closely with on a daily basis can form a strong bond, especially when that group is small, driven, and successful. The term continuity gets used a lot in sports, and that's for good reason. It is extremely valuable to have a stable base of people who understand how everything works and what to expect. Before the season started, Cheryl Reeve referred to their longtime core as a, quote, group of seven. Four captains in Simone Augustus, Lindsey Whalen, Maya Moore, and Rebecca Brunson, as well as three coaches in Reeve, Peterson, and Shelly Patterson. For Jim, the relationships with his team, especially his fellow coaches, were at the center of his job and are responsible for his ability and desire to stay with the organization for as long as he did. Uh, Cheryl and Shelly both. Um, they both, uh, Shelly Patterson is, uh, is uh, it's fire and ice, you know what I mean, those two, and so... Uh, uh, Cheryl is 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 fire, uh, and Shelly is is the calm, cool, collected one. She's the one that I, you know, she's like my road wife. So she's the one that I was always traveling with. So we had this super super tight connection because when you're when you're assistant coaches together, you you are in the grind together. And uh, Cheryl had these very high levels of um, she was very demanding, and she had this certain high level of expectation of what, what our work needs to be. And so um, um, just a normal scouting report wouldn't do. You had to be able to answer a lot of questions and you had to think about the questions Cheryl was going to ask you. And so Shelly and I would always talk like, what do you think she's going to ask her? Like, you know, like, it was, it was, it was a figuring out process for a couple of years. Um, um, and so Shelly and I were, were super close. And so those, those relationships that you, that you um, get are, are lifelong, you know, because um, we've been, been in a lot of battles together. We've won a lot of games. We've lost some, some, some tough games together, but we've won a lot. And um, when you're in the trenches together like that, you just, you build a bond that's like forever. You think about being in the military or something and being through some kind of firefight. Now I'm not equating the two obviously, but it's an analogy, right? So um, it, it, it feels like life or death when you're in it, you know, when, when you lose an a WNBA final um, it's, it's not, it's not fun. You know what I mean? So um, when we lost Indiana in 2012 and we lost to uh, L.A. last year, um, it was it was tough. But, you know, the thrill of winning was just so phenomenal. So, yeah, I mean, the the, the bond with Cheryl and Shelly definitely kept me going. But then the winning and being around the greatest group of women players, forget about gender, um, um, Maya, Waylon, Brunson, Simone. And now Sill, but before that, you know, Taj McWilliams Franklin, um, you know, Monica Wright, Candace Wiggins, all the players that have cycled through here. Um, I, I've just never been around a group of people that are so all about winning before because, you know, when you, it's different in the NBA because, you know, huge amounts of money take away some of the incentive um, that, that players have to be um, – to be solely focused on winning, because if you're in the WNBA and you're making a hundred grand max, um, you're doing it for for the right reasons. You know what I mean? So, like, but when you make fifteen, twenty million, you can get um, you can get sidetracked. You know what I mean? And and sometimes uh, I think that players get more focused on themselves. Sometimes in in the, the NBA that they don't so as much as in the WNBA because the women's game has to grow. They don't have the luxury of a stability that the NBA has. And so this is one of the things that Cheryl talks about all the time with our players, which is, I think is a really good tenant is that 
the minute you start thinking about yourself as a player, you're losing. You're in a losing proposition. That you once you start thinking about what's in it for me, or where do I fit in, or what what about me, or if you're on the court thinking about you, like you know what was me. If you start thinking of internalizing a mistake or whatever, um, then it, you're hurting. You're hurting your team. So, um, and and that's why I say like. Uh, being around these players have also kept me in the also kept me in the game for a long time because of um, their greatness and and their and their coachability and um, their desire to win and be great and um, it, the tone was set with Cheryl. I mean, Cheryl comes in and she talks to Simone Augustus and, and she asks Simone, "What do you want your legacy to be?" Because Simone was a great player before Cheryl got here. She was an all star. She was phenomenal, but. Um, Simone had, you know, cycled through coaches. She, you know, she'd been a good player, but she hadn't won anything. Um, and so, you know, she challenged Simone. And, and that was an important get. Then getting Maya Moore, obviously, Maya is just, a, you know, she's programmed to win. Getting Whalen was huge. Getting Brunson was, was, I mean, the sun, moon, and stars came into alignment, Neil. You know, that's the thing that you have to understand about this is that um, you got to have a, a, some, a certain amount of intelligence to be able to make p- right player decisions. And then you've got to have, um, some some good luck. You've got to have a Maya Moore fall into your lap. If you can get that transcendent player on your team through the draft, I mean, that's, you know, LeBron James, you know, the the Kobe Bryants. And if you if you can be smart to get those kind of, you know, uh, generational players, um, you know, it just, it just makes all the difference in the world. And so things really took off when Maya came. But um, Cheryl Reeve is really the, the person that drives all of this. The list of duties placed upon an assistant coach can be long and varied. This is especially true in the WNBA, where traveling team staff numbers are small. Coaches are counted on for a number of responsibilities, and Jim Peterson was no exception. I'm pretty technologically savvy, so um, we switched from this XO's editing system, this computer software program that we used to break games down. It was uh, it was Windows based. It was awful. It was um, it was cumbersome. It would crash a lot. It was unstable. It's a video editing program to to edit games. So basically, we take a we take a game. You take a, a full package. Okay, so a video package. It's uh, it's it's a full game. So it's two roughly two hours, right? And so then, like you stick it into the program, the full package, and you use the software to break it down by possession, offense, defense, offense, defense, offense, defense, and it takes it makes one line offense, one line defense. And so I can just watch all of our defensive clips or I can watch all of our offensive clips. And the person that this is where this is where video coordinators come in because they're so valuable because they save coaches time. So the video coordinator is breaking the game down by possession, but they're also labeling each possession. So and they're labeling each team. So um, they so the video coordinator will put in all of our play sets and the name of the play so that we can sort then by the name of a play and figure out which plays are successful. So which so we ran two up five times in the game. How many times did we score out of two up? Well, we scored once out of two up. And then we look at other play sets. We ran four out. How many times did we run four out? We ran four out six times, okay? We scored four times out of four out. Okay, so we want to, next time we play that team or we look at our play sets, we start doing a points per possession. This is where analytics come in. Um, you start analyzing your offense, and you start going, okay, what's our play frequency? What are we running the most of? Which ones are successful? Which ones aren't? Um, we also have to look at, you know, are we getting fouled on these play sets? Because we have certain play sets that we run at, we get fouled at a high rate. Maya gets fouled if we run 
you know, elbow two. You know what I mean? So, um, so you got to look at the analytics of your offense and, and determine. So that's one of the things too that that you know I brought to the table too is is, is that we talk Cheryl and I would talk about how to how to better analyze our offense from a from a you know from a logistical standpoint. But XOs was or awful. So I I helped switch us to uh, sports code, which is what all the NBA teams are running. So sports code is, is Apple product. It's, it's a phenomenal editing system. Um, and so we switched over and, and, um, and it's, it's been a really powerful tool to be able to analyze the game from a, an analytical standpoint, from an analytics standpoint, you can, you can really drill deep into sports code, into uh, the code windows that you get out of this program to be able to analyze the opponent too, because you can really look at play frequencies and look at what they score on and what they what they're good at, and really kind of drill down and helps you in your scouting uh, into it. So, so you know, play play sets, bringing in new offense, um, s- strategic situations, um, organizing the guys team was a big thing for me, and and you know, I, don't, I think some people understand how important it was the guys. Um, because we only have 12 players in our roster, we don't go against each other very much. Because if you did that with all the games they play and the fact that these players play year-round, you can wear your team up fairly quickly if they're playing against each other. So what we do to, to mitigate that is bring in a group of guys. And so I had a stable of 10 to 15 guys that I would bring in, you know, bring in six or seven for a practice, and they play against our players. And you're playing against high-level men who were physic? You know, I had a seven foot guy, I had a six ten guy, I had a six eight guy, I had a six six guy. I had jet quick point guards that played college basketball working against Whalen. I had um, super, you know, Sanjay, my son, who was six six, was a practice guy. Tyus Jones, Tyus Jones was a practice guy. We've had two guys: Dan Anderson, Tommy Franklin. Those two, those two guys have been staple guys, team guys. They would also bring players in that they knew that they trusted. They knew what I wanted, what we needed that um, they couldn't be there for themselves. They had to be there for us. And so they had to give up their ego. They're not here for a Timberwolves tryout. They're here to play against the Lynx and be here and be a good, be a scout team, you know? And so we had the best group of guys that have come through here. Um, so I, or, I organized, that was one of my jobs is to make sure the guys were there. That was very stressful because, you know, when you're asking guys to come kind of for free and for fun, you know, um, sometimes they'd show up, sometimes they wouldn't. But for the most part, you know, it was very stressful because I'm always going like, well, we got four. We need one more. Is that guy going to show up? I'm, I'm, I'm stressing. No, I'm stressing. I'm not getting out there. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, our video coordinator, Wes Bond, I'd, I'd throw him out there if we were short. But. For the most part, I mean, the guys' team was a very, very important part of why we were good. Is because they, 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 um, they took reps off of our players, but then they were really good. So that playing against WNBA opponents made the game a little bit easier, and um, and the way that they executed was phenomenal. So that was great. Um, I was really good at scouting too. Like Cheryl, I, I knew exactly what Cheryl. Um, the last four years with Cheryl, I knew exactly what she wanted. I knew I knew how she wanted it. I knew I knew the information she wanted in terms of presenting scouts, in terms of giving her um, the identity of a team, and and then how to how to beat them, like to give her because she doesn't want, just want the information. She wants well, how do we guard it, you know, or or what what offense, what plays would work well against them, you know, based on how they play defense, how they guard pick and roll, how they um, defend the post, how you know their perimeter defenders are they good. To, you know, like what can we run against them that is good? So she wanted not not just this is what they're going to do. She wants how do we beat them? And so 
that's another thing that where Cheryl and I got really close is that she, I think she really appreciated the level of detail that I would bring to the table in terms of the scouts that I would present to her and then to the team um, to make it simple. And then communicating that to the players is a very important component of that because they have to be able to get it. You know what I mean? Because they're going to forget within within a couple days. So, like, there isn't a lot of carryover sometimes between you – know, if, we, if we play San Antonio – the second week in June and they don't, we don't play them again until the third week in July. They aren't going to remember all the things that we did. We remember, but they don't. And so um, you've got to present each scout. Like it's a brand new thing that there's not going to be a lot of carryover. So um, uh, with some of the players they would remember for the most part, they don't, but um, that's just a function of, of, you know, we're deeply, deeply immersed as coaches in all this information. The players aren't. They just, they just want to know what's, what do I got to do tonight? You know what I mean? So, um, it's a, um, it's a, it's a great relationship. But so I wore a lot, of, I wore a lot of hats. A lot of hats indeed. In addition to assisting with video coordination, the guys' practice squad and scouting, Jim also worked primarily with the Lynx post players. Peterson stands six foot ten inches tall and played center in the NBA for eight years. Hakeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson, two Hall of Fame big men, were teammates with Jim in the late 80s. So yeah, Jim knows a thing or two about how to play in the paint. In his long tenure with the Lynx, Peterson worked with a lot of players, but he told me about a few who he developed a special relationship with. Number one is Rebecca Brunson. I mean, she's like a daughter to me. I, I look at her and... Um, and her wife, Bobby Joe, as being like family. I mean, uh, Rebecca Brunson is one of the greatest warriors, one of the greatest people. Um, who she is as a human being is 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 probably better than she is as a player. And, and as great as she is, she's a Hall of Fame type player to me. Um, but she's a better person. Um, um, you know, coming in, I think that we spent a lot of time together as far as basketball was concerned, as far as court work was concerned. That's the voice of Lynx forward Rebecca Brunson. That continued to grow um, throughout the time. And, you know, they are like family. I look at, you know, Sanjay like that's my little brother. Um, and Tika, you know, and Jim, they're, they're family. So I think that the amount of time that we started spending together initially kind of allowed our relationship to continue to grow and become something bigger than basketball. So that, that relationship with Brunson, you know, and, and when Brunson first came from Sacramento, well, even even going back to my first year of, of coaching, I'm I'm sitting here watching with all these players with fresh eyes, right? So I've never I don't really know all of them, but Sacramento was my scout when I first came in the league, and I'm watching Sacramento play, and I, and so I'm looking at um, the way that they play, and I and I'm saying to myself, why doesn't Brunson play more? Because they they used to rotate all these post players in and out, and Brunson didn't have the same role. She she would only play half or less. I mean, she averaged maybe 18. 18, 20 minutes a game, maybe in Sacramento, and I'm and I'm watching her play. And I'm going, why doesn't this player play more? She's unbelievable, and she's such a force. Like, and so when we got her, um, I was so excited because I knew how good she was. It was a dispersal draft, so Nicole Powell went to New York, and then we had the second pick of that dispersal draft, and we were able to get Brunson through the dispersal draft. So she was the second best player on Sacramento's team. Um, and had we had the first pick, you know, I don't know that we wouldn't have picked Nicole Powell. We would have missed out on Brunson, but. But um, in any event, um, when she first came, Rebecca is um, you've got to build trust with her because she's a little prickly. You just can't come at, you just can't come at Brunson any old way and, and give her information about her game. So so I had I had to build a relationship with her. And 
and spend a lot of time with her and shoot with her. And the th- one of the things, you know, she was always kind of known as a rebounder, offensive rebounder, post inside player. But when I looked at her jump shot and I looked at her technique, I was like, she's got beautiful technique. We just, we need to work and expand this part of her game. Like I, you know, so Rebecca and I spent a ton of time together working on reps, just repping her jumper, um, improving her mechanics a little bit, the, the sequencing of her jump shot, um, for how, how, having her be a little, little bit more efficient and be willing to take those shots. Because if you've never been a perimeter jump shooter and now you're being asked to unleash this part of your game, so, and even Cheryl, like, you know, wasn't crazy about about BB shooting jump shots. She wanted BB to be inside, get offensive rebounds, get putbacks, get him in transition, you know, get a few up and unders in, in inside. But we aren't really that interested in um, in her, her shooting fifteen footers when we could have two of the greatest shooters of all time shoot jumpers, Maya and Simone. Why would you want Brunson taking those shots when you're taking away shots from these other two, or drives by Whalen, or whatever? And so. Um, so it took some time, both developing the relationship with Rebecca and then also getting that introduced now into the offense where it's okay for Rebecca to take those shots during the game. Well, first he's, he's put the time in. Um, I think that's something that you always have to do. And he was also someone who, who – he's someone who knows the game. He was a player. He's still around the NBA a lot. You know, he's around the WNBA and has been around for years. So he knows and he understands the game. And, you know, as a retired player, you can kind of pass on things that you didn't really get until – you retired or later on in your career. So some of those things that he's given me the opportunity to kind of take with me so that I don't have to say, hey, you know, I wish I would have because he's already been there. He's already done it. So now he's at a point where he can say, hey, look, I, I thought about this at the end of my career. Here you have an opportunity to kind of change your mindset and think about those things now and, and use them. And you'll see now that she's shooting threes this year. And so Rebecca and I, we expanded her range last year. And so one of the things, you know, um, I, I, I was kind of begging Cheryl was to just to give Rebecca some freedom to be able to take more shots that I think that, that if you take the shackles off Rebecca's mind, that it's a that it's that it's not a bad shot for her. That it's a good shot for her. That she can make that shot, because so much of this, if your mechanics are good, and and you have the ability to knock down shots in practice, that the, if you don't do it in a game, I think it's most of it's mental. That you that, that if you've got these shackles on your brain, that's why I don't like coaches who tell who tell players don't shoot. Um, I don't like that. I don't like that philosophy. Obviously, shot selection is a is something that you want to have players have an understanding of. You want players to know what a good shot is and a bad shot is. But if they're leaving you open because they don't respect your ability to shoot and you can shoot, that's a problem because now um, other things are being taken away because they don't respect your ability to shoot the basketball and they're just going to leave you alone out there. Ricky Rubio is a perfect example of a guy that had a lot of shackles on his brain. Um, and and so, you know, once Ricky, I think, released that, you saw a big, huge improvement with him. So, um, so, that, so Rebecca, you know, is... is my all time, you know, that's my daughter right there, you know, and then I almost in the same category, but we just haven't spent as much time together. Who I just adore is Janelle McCarvel. Janelle McCarvel is um, just a, a, just a really super special person to me. Like, uh, you know, our, our personality just clicked. She's funny. I love her. She's a great player. I admired her at the university of Minnesota playing with Waylon. I've always, I've always really admired her. Um, and and there's no question that that Janelle McCarvel is one of my all time favorite players to work with. She's she's also one that you got to come at it at a, at a certain way. You just can't come at her any old way because um, she's got her own limitations of of what she feels like she can do and can't do. I had to beg her to shoot threes, 
Uh, I mean, and because if we we needed that space element, we needed that that space four five. That if you can get that element, that's such a huge weapon. So getting her to wrap her mind around that, that she's not just a passer, that she can score, and we need her to score, because they focus so much attention on Simone and Maya, um, and they take away Whalen. That if you can step out there and knock down those jump shots regularly, it's such a huge advantage. Um, Sylvia Fowles is someone that I go back to Chicago, um, and I, it, it, I'm, I'm not like angling, and I'm not trying to be tampering or anything like that. But, but when I would see players that I admired on the other team, when I would walk onto the court as a coach before the game, and they'd be on the floor stretching or shooting or whatever, I'd go chat them up. You know what I mean? I would just go say hello because I just I really admire them. You know what I mean? Like I I like players who are are committed to the game and who who after what especially because I had Chicago as my as my scout too the whole time so um, I would sit there and watch Sill on on videotape and I'd feel like I knew her you know what I mean even though I didn't know her I feel like I did just just by watching so much Sylvia Fowles like how do we stop Sylvia Fowles oh my god we sit there and watch video video and you feel like you know them um, and so when I'd walk under the court against Chicago whether it's in Chicago or in Minnesota I'd always chat Sill up because not only is she a phenomenal player but She's just one of the most incredible human beings. Like she's got this sweet demeanor. You know what I mean? She's like the superstar player and she's got the sweetest, nicest demeanor. And so I would always chat Cell up. Whenever I'd play Chicago, I'd say, Hey, what's going on, Dick Cell? You know, we'd we'd talk and stuff, and she was great. And so when we had a chance to get her, I was so excited because she's she's like one of those players that if you can ever coach a player like that, you just go, Oh my god, this is the most amazing experience to be able to to coach a player this talented. I asked Sylvia Fowles if there was a move in her arsenal that she attributes to Jim Peterson. Uh, Jim loved me when I duck in. Uh, those were the easy buckets, and um, he loved when I duck in. So definitely duck in is Jim all the way. <laughs> Catch him off guard. Just more recently, I mean, there have been a lot of players that, that we've had here that I, I mean, I love Taj. There's no question about it. Um, but then the other one is, is uh, Natasha Howard, who um, I just adore her. She was a player that came in um, from Indiana, kind of damaged, um, where I think that her self-image of who she was as a player was very limited. Um, she's probably the best runner, um, the way that she runs the court. I don't think I've ever seen a player at the WNBA level run like she can run. Like they're, like She just knifes up the floor, and she glides so fast, and she can just get out and run, and I just, you know, Cheryl and I, that's one of the things that we talked about, how much we loved, why we wanted to get her um, was was her ability to run the floor because we knew we played against them, uh, playing against Indiana in the finals, that she was hard to play against. I don't think she missed a shot against us when we played Indiana in the finals, um, and she had the ability to really be effective. So um, I one of the things about her shot motion, uh, it, was, it, was, um, it was in need of some repair, and so... That's another thing too. I spent a lot of time with Natasha, and, and the person that probably that that suffered the most um, because I I had Brunson, I had McCarville, and I spent a lot of time with Natasha. So I didn't spend as much time with Sill because Sill to me is a is a Hall of Fame player who was you know West Bond worked with uh, our video coordinator worked with Sill more individually, um, but I spent a lot of time with Natasha because. I just felt that Tasha could could be a, a game changer for our offense if, if she was functioning at a higher level, at the highest level. And so I spent a lot of time with her. 
Links forward, Natasha Howard. Like he, like he was telling me some stories about him as, as when he was in the league, how he was just tall and like not that big as well. He he had to use his quickness and stuff, and that's when he was telling me like you know you kind of like you small in the league, but like these girls are stronger, you know, but you quicker than these girls, so you use your quickness on them, use your length. So that's what I learned from him when he told me. So that works for me. So that's what I miss. You know, I miss I miss Cheryl and Shelly. I miss the coaching staff. I miss the people. I miss the players, and I miss the grind. You know, I miss I missed, um, you know, working with the players and, and seeing the successes and enjoying those successes when Rebecca would hit a jump shot in clutch moments and she would look at me and I'd look at her or when Syl would make a move that we worked on and she would ex- she would execute it. You know, you, you get that connection. And um, when Natasha is, you know, going off on a game and she's doing stuff, you know, runners and post moves that we worked on and she points to me at the bench. It's like there's just really nothing that can that can um, replace that sort of vibe, you know, um, that you had a small part to play in this player's success, whether it was in the game or in the season or during their career. So um, those are the kind of things that I'll always remember. Jim Peterson is regarded as one of, if not the single best color commentator in the NBA. He's beloved by basketball junkies for his unbiased opinions and an ability to easily explain his vast wealth of knowledge to the TV audience at home. ESPN's Zach Lowe once wrote the following about Peterson, quote, If you crave smart commentary, you can't do any better than Dave Benz and Jim Peterson. Whenever I hear Peterson toss out a sport VU stat or discuss some nugget he learned watching film the night before, I feel sad that they are not broadcasting for a larger audience, unquote. As a longtime Wolves fan, I've seen the progression of Jim Peterson as a broadcaster. There was a direct correlation between his growth as an analyst and his time as a WNBA coach. Until his departure from the Lynx bench, there was no other NBA analyst who was also simultaneously coaching at the pro level. By working year-round in two separate areas of the greater basketball world, Jim grew his skills in both his broadcasting and coaching careers. Being an analyst, um, I would see a lot what was going on in the NBA, and so I would I would I would uh, I would watch offenses and defensive concepts, and I would talk to NBA coaches and, and talk about talk to them about how they executed certain things, and and then when you see uh, when you see games and you watch uh, certain things work, and when you start coaching, you start looking at the game in a whole different way. You start learning. Um, the base the, the basic tenets of things that help you win games, and all these little small things like. Um, I mean, a small thing is baseline out of bounds and sideline out of bounds plays and plays that you run after timeouts. The fact that you that you a timeouts called, the team comes to the bench and now instead of being able to, you know, just run a, a base play in the flow of the game, where you're giving out hand signals where you're running offense, basically, that the players kind of know that they can execute well in the flow of the game. But you get them on a the sideline now. And you actually can draw something up that's a little more exotic or maybe a wrinkle out of a base set. And now you can be a little trickier and come out of a timeout and run something that, that the other team's not expecting. And so little strategic things like that, like ATOs after timeouts, like and watching teams like um, I just remember watching obviously Greg Popovich is phenomenal. But Mike D'Antoni, um, when Mike Woodson was in New York, he ran a lot of great ATO stuff. Rick Carlisle, phenomenal coach who runs really cool sets out of timeouts and being able to um, 
look at those scenarios as, as opportunities to win this possession because at, you know at the end of a game whether you won or lost and you start breaking the video down you look at five or six possessions that could have gone if we would if we could have won those five or six possessions if you lost the game if you say we win these possessions we win the game um, so you know baseline of bounce sideline of bounce it, after timeouts end of game situations like you you, you watch the San Antonio Spurs and, and how pop uh, draws up plays and and Sean Elliott was telling me this one um Pop ran a play against the Timberwolves it was a game winner at the end of game situation it was it was a play that I hadn't seen them run before and so um I I stole the play set and I brought it to Cheryl Cheryl loved it and it became one of our staple plays that we ended up running um and so I talked to Sean Elliott about it and he said that Pop has this um sort of catalog of play sets that he pulls out for every game and he keeps a, a log of these plays, these end-of-game situation plays. He keeps a log of them. He knows exactly when he ran them last. Uh, he knows if they scored or didn't score. He knows which ones are successful and which ones aren't successful. And that play that he ran in that game, he hadn't run in three years. So so that's the level of, of sort of like, you know, detail and stuff like that. So... So you've got to be you've got to be able to. So I'm talking to Cheryl about this, and so we, you know, so she. The great thing about her is that she's she's the smartest person in the room, but she but she wants information. She wants you to bring stuff to her. She wants you to share information. So that was one of my early jobs was you know bringing playsets, bringing stuff that worked. Um, another thing that I was good at um, the the analytics part of it, being able to look at the NBA and and um, the analytical part of it. Um, was very important. I think that I think the first sort of analytic analytics based thing that I kind of was aware of as as, an, as a TV analyst was um, offensive and defensive and total rebound percentage. Because when you see like you know per, what what I started figuring out um, ten twelve years ago was that per game per game stats are meaningless. That until you see things through the filter of pace, like it's like you really can't figure out how a team plays, and that's why I came up with a stat sheet that we ended up using and putting in our scouting reports for us more than the players. But it was a it was what I prepare for each game for a Wolves game. It, the stat sheet that I would put together for a Wolves game was a very detailed sort of you know, Timberwolves opponent um, sort of tail of the tape but with analytics fully involved. So like I literally, we, we play the Philadelphia 76ers and obviously some of these East, Eastern conference teams, we don't see them very often. But the first thing I do when I prepare for a Wolves game is I do my stat sheet. And when I do my stat sheet, I can tell you exactly how the Philadelphia 76ers play without seeing a single thing of video. If I hadn't seen the Sixers play all season long, I can tell you what they do by the time I finish my analytics sheet. Um, so, um, that was an important part of bringing that to the table. And Cheryl was very into all of that. She wanted more information. The more I can get, the better. The, the more informed we can be, the more of a separator we can get from our opponent and the information that we have, we can be better. And so you get little edges. You know, you get a little edge here. You get a little edge there. Video editing, we're on a little edge. We, You know, the analytics, we got a little edge. Uh, we look at start looking at shot charts. The shot chart's very important to being able to see how both teams and individuals, where is their shot distribution? Where are they getting their shots from? And how are they deriving those shots? Where, how are they getting the shots that they're making? And you can look at, you've seen them before, you've seen those shot charts before, you've seen pinpoints. On, and then we start doing it individually by player. And the other thing that we have that other teams don't have is we have Paul Swanson. Swanee is 
And so he would generate all these, these advanced stats for us. Um, and Swanee was very important, very instrumental in the advanced stats part of what we do, too. I mean, he, he helped me understand it years ago. I mean, I'm talking like Swanee was very much a part of when I was – before I started coaching, the analytics part of what we did. Because his game notes for, the, for an NBA game – I don't know if you've ever seen Swanee's game notes. The best in the NBA. The, the stuff that he's able to call and pull out of um, um, Sports Cube, which is the, the database that dumps all the information in there, the way he pulls information out of Sports Cube and is able to generate these, these things that he does. Um, and so with the WNBA, there's no other team that had individual chart charts. I mean, like when we played um, the LA Sparks, um, I knew exactly where, where Candace Parker was getting all of her shots and which shots, which spots on the floor were her hot spots. And which spots were her cold spots, and so we would put that in the scouting report. We'd say, okay, if she's if she's on the right slot, you better close out to her and get out there because she's like she's shooting fifty eight percent from the right slot. If she gets it in the left shot slot, she's shooting twelve percent from the left slot. So like we w- we would tell Brunson like if she gets, you got to get out there, but you can get you can take your time. You could be in help a little longer in these situations if she's over there because. She's not quite as effective. Now, she's still a good player. She could still could theoretically hurt you from that left slot. But, but it's all about playing the percentages, right? So the more that you can dive deep into each individual player, and so we're not asking each, each player to know every single player. Just understand the hot spots of the player that you're playing against, and that's the most important thing. And when it came to playoff time, when we would start really diving deep, we would make them know all this information about them. So like if you get switched off to somebody, you've got to know if it's a hot spot or not. And you got to know drive directions. Which way do they like to drive? So it's a very complicated thing, but you can simplify it in your mind as a coach that if you just focus on the few important things and have a tendency, what is their tendency? And take away the tendency. And, and if you can win those five or six possessions based on you having a little bit more information than the other team, that's why I see you're successful. So obviously you got to have great players. But it's the little stuff that helps you win games, and that's where uh, the Minnesota Lynx separate themselves. There's no question that that coaching has made me a better analyst because it's kind of like you know there's a lot of analysts that are good analysts that that never coached, but if you if you kind of notice like especially nationally, I mean like to me um, Jeff Van Gundy's phenomenal, Mark Jackson's phenomenal, QB Brown's phenomenal, Doug Collins, you know, and, and so like if you never coached, let's just say you you were just a player. And and uh, you never coached, and you've been a longtime analyst in the league. It's hard for it's hard for you to really really drill down. You, I mean, there there are some really good players who are great analysts that never coached um, because they understand the game. But the thing that helped me is that I would take my theories as an analyst and bring them, and then be able to test them as a coach in a game. I could test my theory. Or, or throw it into a coach's meeting and we can talk about it and, and it can get shot down or it can be, you know, brought up and it can be utilized. So I had this beautiful sort of ex, um, experience of being able to get theories during the NBA season and then take them back into our coaches' meetings with Cheryl and Shelley and be able to maybe throw it through Swanee's window of analytics and be able to bring it back and what do you think and let's throw it in there, let's try it and see what happens. And so whether it's pick and roll coverages or a certain play set or – you know, how do you guard wing pick versus mid pick? And, and what do you do in, in post-up situations? Is, is it best to front or is it, should you like, you know, fight, you know, a three quarter front or should you stay behind a double team and where do you double team from? So like until you've sat there and grinded and watched video, you can't, 
there, it's it's very difficult to really test your theories as as a as an analyst until you see it. Um, and so then you know, just sitting there, there's no substitute for watching for looking at that computer screen for hours on end, day in and day out through the course of a summer. And I did it for eight years. Um, and that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why, um, in the NBA video coordinators become head coaches. I mean, Eric Spolster is a, Eric Spolster is a perfect example, um, um, of a guy that sat there and grinded in Pat Riley's video room who, when you watch everybody's offense and you have this super like big database of like, of like everybody's offense and you're, and you see something as a video coordinator, you go, if I ever get a job, I'm, I'm running this all these sets and you start pulling sets and you put it into a file for your own personal use. I'm using all of these play sets. So um, there's the grind is, is the important part of it. And so I, I paid my dues and it's one of, you know, I'm not sitting there saying like, you know um, I, I know more. I just, I just, I just done my work. You know what I mean? So when I speak during a Wolves game, I'm speaking from experience. Cause I've sat there and had to, I know why a play works. So when I see a defensive mistake, when I see, um, I'm not calling Carl out, but I, like this is just an example um, where a team runs a high ball screen against the Wolves, and and when and when they score, you look at the play and go, why did they score? And so sometimes like it's so stark, you go, well, how did they just get a wide open layup? Well, that's where I can come in and I can say as a coach, I can say, well, Carl didn't rotate. Carl didn't 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 you know he should have left his player and he should have gone and take the roller, and and he should have been the the person that did it or whoever. And so when there's a when there's a breakdown, and it's not that I'm trying to call a Wolves player up out, I'm trying to in teach. You know what I mean? I'm trying to inst- I'm trying to explain what happened. I'm not trying to call anybody out or be negative. I'm just trying to tell our fans when when this set of circumstances happen, if you don't react this way, it's going to be a, it's going to be an easy score. So so I'm uh, I I try to bring in as much of my coaching experience into our broadcast i think our fans really appreciate it because it's it's next level sort of stuff that um a lot of other analysts that never coached they they just either don't know to bring it up or they don't have time to bring it up or they're producers and see that's the other thing too is my fox family uh the people i work with at fsn my producers and directors uh dave Dittman, uh, trevor fleck chris withers um you know vanessa um, they're just they they just have, are so supportive of me and being being able to give me the time to do that stuff. So it's 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 a really kind of a team thing, you know what I mean? Like they know I have that information, they make time for it, and um, it's it's I think the Wolves fans are are uh, the beneficiaries of some really good TV production work. Finally, I asked Jim about his decision to leave the Lynx. If it had been hard to be away from the team this summer. And if there could be a return to coaching in his future, the thing that I wanted to do, one of the things I, I kind of told myself, and I really didn't didn't talk to Cheryl about this at all, and I've kind of mentioned it to her because we, my wife and I, have been to probably <clears throat> eight or nine Lynx games this year. We've been to a lot of games, and then afterwards we go back and, and to the coaching room with Cheryl. And we have some drinks afterwards, and and we talk about the game, and so um, it's and it's like no time has passed. You know what I mean? I go back, I go back into that coach's room. But the thing that I wanted to kind of really kind of do was um, give James and Walt, the new coaches, um, you know, James Wade is someone that I respected a ton down in San Antonio, just a game plan against them and playing against San Antonio and seeing his demeanor down the bench with Dan Hughes. And Dan Hughes, the head coach of San Antonio, uh, is one of Cheryl's mentors who Cheryl adores. 
and has a tremendous amount of respect for. So when James Wade got the job, um, it was a great hire because it's just a good fit. Dan, Dan and Cheryl are close. Uh, when Dan retired, James, um, I think, you know, he obviously wanted to come to a team that was very successful and to get a chance to work with somebody else like Cheryl. So I wanted to give James and then Walt, who was hired from Nevada, I wanted to give them space. So I didn't want to, you know, I could come here to practice every day if I wanted to. I could come and be around and be hanging around. But I didn't want to do that to them. You know, I wanted to give them their own ability to carve out their own space with this team and be who they are. So um, it's not that I'm not welcome. It's not that I want to come. But I want to be respectful um, of of their of their positions and their jobs. Um, so um, I want to be supportive, and so that's why I'm at the games, and that's why I come back and see Revo, and because I miss her, and um, and I want to be able to, to to say hi to them and congratulate them and stuff like that. So I watch every game. My wife and I are still huge fans. Uh, we watch every game on TV. Um, you know, I'm, I'm texting back and forth with with players and, and coaches and stuff like that, but. Um, no, I, I, I needed a break, and I wanted to be there for my son, Sanjay, who just graduated from Northwestern, who now is playing professionally in Brussels, Belgium, and um, I wanted to be there for Sanjay as he graduated. I want to be there as he was trying to make it and go work out, so we went down to Miami together. Um, we've, we've worked out together a bunch. Um, I've been able to do things this summer that I always... I've, I've been the guy that says no to everybody whenever they ask me. For eight years, you know, somebody would ask me, hey, can you come to dinner on this night? Nope. My family gatherings. Hey, can you come to this barbecue, family barbecue? Can you come to Memorial? Nope, I can't do that. Um, hey, Jim Pete, can you come play golf? Nope, I can't play golf. Um, so I went from the guy of saying no all the time to the guy who could say yes all the time, which um, is kind of a neat thing. So, um, no, I just, it's... It's been it's been a difficult thing to get it kind of give up because of um, the success that we've had and the team is still fully constituted to be successful. The other thing too is I always wanted to I always wanted to coach Planet Pearson. I told Cheryl, I told Cheryl because you know I I loved Planet when she was in Detroit and wherever Planet's been um, has been I I would tell I've been, I've been telling Cheryl for the past five years can we get Planet Pearson please you had her in Detroit I I absolutely love her game. She's been in, she killed us last year uh, in, in Dallas where she hit five threes and hit shit five threes in the game, and I was like, why can't we get Planet? She's exactly what. So I was told her I was really mad at her because um, here here you know I've been telling you that we need to get Planet Pearson on our team for five years, and now the the year I leave is when you get her. And so Planet's also one of my favorites, by the way. I've I've always admired her, um, and so this is going to be her last year, so she's going to retire. But. Um, Anyway, I kind of missed out on that whole deal, but no, it's been it's been an amazing. I don't I don't know what my future holds. You know, I, I you know I think that now that I had my break, uh, dovetailing seasons for eight years in a row has been difficult. Now the, the thing that's difficult, we've been to the finals five times. I've literally coached and then broadcasted exhibition games. Uh, three of the five years we were in the finals, I'm coaching a championship game, broadcasting a Wolves game, coaching a championship game, broadcasting a Wolves game. I'm literally overlapping. And so now with the, with the NBA season moving up, if we go to the finals, I would not be able to do Wolves games at that point. And then on the other end, at the end of the Wolves season, if the Wolves make the playoffs, um, I would be theoretically able to broadcast games in the first and second round. I think second round, I believe. First round for sure. So I would not be able to broadcast Wolves playoff games. So here I spend all that time with the Wolves, and then I'm not going to be able to broadcast the games because I have to be at training camp. For the links, so and the thing is, is that if they, if they overlap like that, then I get no break, and that's when that's when that's when I get kind of burned out because, um, you know, it's just it's 
The Wolf season, the pacing is a little easier, obviously, because I'm not having to scout and watch game, watch video to the level I do during, as a coach. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. We'll we'll see if it's if it's plausible. Um, um, I, and then, you know, Cheryl and Shelley and Walt and James, they have their thing going. And so I'm not going to go work for some other coach, some other city, you know, so, um, it's either, it's either links or bust. <laughs> so, um, so we'll see. I, I don't know, but, um, it, all I know, Neil has been a fun ride. Thanks for listening to episode three of links dynasty. Special thanks to Jim Peterson, Rebecca Brunson, Sylvia Fowles, and Natasha Howard for their time. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. If you enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to another basketball fan in your life. Lynx Dynasty is produced, written, and hosted by me, Neil Olstad. You can follow me on Twitter at Lynx underscore Dynasty at read my 2017 Minnesota Lynx coverage at canishoopus.com. Thanks for listening. 